a city that was dominated by uh, the pagan worship of a Greek goddess called Artemis. In fact, in the middle of the city was the great temple of Artemis. This was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It's uh, a pretty impressive structure. Um, Now, we're told in Acts 19 that the first people to become Christians in Ephesus were at one time uh, involved in Artemis worship. I mean, that's what everyone in Ephesus did. In fact, they were involved in all sorts of um, weird occult practices. Uh, And when they became Christians, they gathered their magic scrolls together uh, in a big pile and they burned them. Uh, So in many ways, it was a, a very unusual church. Um, but this, these were Christians who knew and believed and had experience of what we would call evil spiritual influences. And not only that, there were a church that faced great opposition. Uh, there was a guy in Ephesus whose name was Demetrius, and his job was to sell little statues of Artemis to all the tourists that would come from all over the Roman Empire to Ephesus to see this great temple. Um, and he was worried that this church, which was starting to gain a bit of traction in the city, was going to take away his business. And so he incited this riot against the church, and and he brought some members of the church out in public, uh, and he got all these people to start chanting for two hours, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So this was a church that, that was under pressure, This was a church that faced a lot of opposition. It was not easy to be a Christian in Ephesus, to be a Christian in the shadow of this great temple. You would have felt weak. You would have felt powerless. You would have felt very much on the the edge of society. But Paul writes this letter, Ephesians, to encourage these Christians And he encourages them by showing them that the real power of God is is not in the city of Ephesus or or in this temple of Artemis, but in this church, in this tiny church. So in the first three chapters of this letter, Paul has explained to us what it means to be part of the church of Jesus. It means that that you're part of God's plan to, to fix the world. You're part of God's plan to restore everything together in unity under the the lordship of Jesus. We saw that the power of God is seen in the church in two ways, and how he unites messed up sinners like us to Jesus by his grace, and how he unites us together by his grace, how he unites us as what Paul would say, a new humanity of God. That is the real power Outwardly, this church did not look impressive. But look at this temple behind me. Everyone went to the temple. But where is that temple today? And yet, where is the church of Jesus? We don't even know what that's an artist's representation of what it might look like. Where is the church of Jesus? A hundred million in China, as Hugh prayed. And so Paul has been getting us to see in these letters that that these people sitting next to you tonight are an infinitely more impressive temple than any structure or building. 
And it goes to show that the, the trends that people follow today will be the forgotten relics of the future. But the church of Jesus will always remain. So that's what Paul's been getting us to see in, in the first three chapters of Ephesians. And then in chapters 4 through 6, he's been explaining to us how the church should live in light of who they are. How, how we should walk in light of who we are. And when we read these chapters and, and we look through them, it, it seems surprisingly ordinary. What does the, the new life of God's new humanity look like? It looks like loving each other, being united It looks like being careful about how you speak. It looks like having no crude joking. It looks like being kind and compassionate, being forgiving and loving. It looks like a a husband loving his wife and and a wife um, being submitting to her husband. It looks like children being obedient to their parents and parents caring for their children. That's what it looks like to live out the great truths of the gospel. Seems quite ordinary, but actually if, if you had a community of people that really lived like that, it would be an extraordinary place. Now, I want you to keep all that in mind because we're coming to the conclusion of everything. Think about who this church is and think about everything that Paul said in this letter. And let's look at Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10 to 24. Let's rumble. Ephesians 6. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all of this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. Pray also for me, that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. Tychicus, the dear brother and faithful servant in the Lord, will tell you everything so that you may also know how I am doing and what I am doing. I am sending him to you for this very purpose that you may know how we are and that he may encourage you. Peace to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with an undying love. In light of everything that Paul says in Ephesians, his closing call to the church in Ephesus is be strong in the Lord. How do we do that? Well, before we look at the detail of this passage, let me pray and then we'll look through it. Father, we need your help 
to understand your word. Father, as we come to the end of this great letter, may the great truths of the gospel be impressed upon our hearts in in a way that is fresh and exciting. Father, may we see who we are in Christ and may we see who we are together. Father, may we be united and strong in the great strength of Jesus and his victory. Father, I pray tonight that you would challenge us where we need to be challenged and comfort us where we need to be comforted. Father, may we see that we have a a real and dreadful enemy, but may we also see that we have a great and powerful Savior. May we find rest in his strength. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. My little clicker's not working. Um, How are we to be strong in the Lord? First thing that Paul wants us to see from this passage is that we need to be aware of the opposition. Finally, says Paul, so in, in light of who you are and in light of how you should live, this is what you now need to do. Stand strong in the Lord and in his strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Here's how Paul wants to end this letter. He wants the Ephesian Christians to remember that whilst they have the most unimaginable privileges of the grace of the gospel of Jesus, they need to be aware that they are on the front line of a war. There is a powerful enemy seeking to undermine everything that Jesus has done through them and for them. And you see, the the Ephesian Christians need need to see this. They need to see that that actually the the threat that they face as a church is not from the the mighty Roman Empire or or from the the pagan cult of Artemis. It's not from people like uh, Demetrius and the other looky-looky men at the temple of Artemis who are inciting riots against them. Paul's saying, that's not your war. Your war is not against flesh and blood. There is a darker, sinister force that's going to attack you as a church. And it's the schemes of the devil. Now, for many in Ephesus, they they probably didn't need convincing of that. Remember their background. They, They had come out of this kind of occult background. But I imagine for most of us today, this is maybe not something that we think about. That we are on the front line of a war with the devil, with these evil powers, with these authorities, with these forces that are uh, ruling this dark world. People treat the idea of Satan and his angels as as if it's a a thing of myth in, in our culture. And I guess that's what... He would want, remember Kaiser Sose from the film The Usual Suspects, the the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world that he didn't exist. But we have to be careful that we don't let that thought infiltrate the church. This is our enemy. This is the one who's going to attack us. C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Screwtape Letters, a fantastic book. And it's a fictional book in which he um, 
imagines a senior devil called Screwtape, who's writing to a junior devil to tell him how to tempt uh, this guy who's become a Christian. And in the preface to that book, uh, Lewis talks about the mistake that we tend to make when it comes to the devil and um, evil spirits. Either we will see them in everything, or we will see them in nothing. And, And Lewis says Satan would be happy with both. So we either attribute everything to the devil. So it's not my fault that the devil made me do it or, or my car won't start. It's got a demon in it. And as such, we really diminish the severity of Satan's attacks, which are very real. Or on the flip side, we attribute nothing to the devil. Evil's just um, a social construct. Evil's a result of our upbringing or, or our own sinfulness. And we don't attribute anything to him unless perhaps we we see someone's head spinning 360 degrees. uh, Then we'll say, well, maybe that's the devil. And both those approaches are wrong. He is there and he is active and his chief target is the church of Jesus. This is our biggest threat. Flesh and blood, that's not what we battle against. It's the devil. That's why we cannot look with hatred upon another human being who attacks the church of Jesus. They, they're not the threat. I mean, really, we were no, we're no better than anyone else. Remember Ephesians 2 verse 1? Paul says that one time we were all dead in our sins, that we were all enslaved to the powers of darkness. And the only reason that we are here and we know these things is because of the grace and mercy of God. The threat is Satan. So how's he going to attack this church? How's he going to attack us? Well, despite what Hollywood says, the chief tactic of the devil is not demon possession. He's much more subtle. Here's how I think he will attack us. He will seek to undermine all the truths that Paul has told us from this letter. So he will make us doubt the great truths of, of Ephesians 1 through 3. He will cause us to question whether or not we are adopted children. He will cause us to question, does God really love me? Can God really forgive me again? Has God really saved me? He will stop us from seeing how important this gathering is and how great the church is. Do you know in, um, in Screwtape Letters, there's a bit where uh, Screwtape is writing to the junior devil uh, and he's telling him as he, as he tempts this man to try and get him to, to go to church and to only focus on the outward appearance and the apparent weakness of the church. Get him to look at the cold brick walls and the stained glass windows and the greengrocer and the old lady in front of him with the the hat on and make him think that's the church. But, says Screwtape, don't ever let him see the church as we see it, as a great army with its banners flying in the wind. Don't let him love the church. And so... He will stop us reflecting on the great truths of Ephesians 1 through 3. But he will attack us by 
also undermining how we're to live as followers of Jesus. He'll try and stop us living out the gospel imperatives of Ephesians 4 through 6. And he will do it very subtly. Just look at how Paul talks about this. Ephesians 4. Look back at Ephesians 4 verse 26. Paul says, In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. That's how Satan's going to attack this church. It's like, you know, when... When I was younger, I don't know if you did this, and you wanted to see up over a wall, you would get your mates to help you and they would hold their hands out like that, give you a foothold. We used to call it a hoisty. They would give you a hoisty up so that you could see over the wall. Well, if you want to give Satan a hoisty into this church, try being angry with someone and letting that anger fester into bitterness and hatred for them. And that's how he'll come in. All that we've seen in our our study of Ephesians in chapters 4 through 6. When we speak ill of of others in the church. When we're not being kind. when, When we're angry. When we're bitter. When we don't love one another. When we're involved in crude joking. Or when we succumb to to sexual immorality. That's where he's going to attack. He will attack you through your marriages. Ephesians 5 and 6, when wives disrespect their husbands and husbands don't humbly love their wives, he'll attack you through your relationships. When children disobey parents and parents are harsh with children, those are the areas of our lives that the spiritual powers want to attack because when we live out those areas, we show the gospel and he wants to undermine the gospel and the unity that the gospel brings. That's the threat to this church. The threat to this church is not the rising tide of secularism. It's not in flesh and blood. It's the devil and his schemes. This is the war. This is more terrifying than any war we may have with Russia or North Korea, as real and as dangerous as those threats are. But be aware, says Paul, that's your opposition. Ephesians, be aware, that's your opposition. But we also need to remember whose side we are on. See, to follow Jesus is to be on the victor's side. Notice what Paul says here. He says, he doesn't say, go to war in your strength, but stand firm in his strength. Yes, we're sinners, sinners who muck up and who fail in many of these areas that we've looked at in this letter. But we worship a Savior who has died for our sin, and any hold that the devil has on us is gone. We're not dead in sin. We're alive to God, and we have his resurrecting power at work within us. As Paul prays in in Ephesians 3 verse 20, God is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power that is at work within us. We have a great power with which to resist the attacks and the assaults of the devil. So how do we stand firm in that power? Second point, be armed with the gospel. Now, look at verse 14 to 17. 
Um, if you've grown up in Sunday school, these verses will be very familiar to you. This is the strategy, okay? If we're to stand firm against this very real threat, we need the armor of God. Now, what exactly is that? Here's what we, we need to notice about this. Firstly, we need to notice that, that the armor of God described here is not a, a list of moral virtues that we must work hard at. So Paul's not saying we need to be more truthful, we need to work hard at peace, we, we need to work hard at integrity and righteousness. It's not, um, that's not what it is. It's not about what we put on to stand firm. And we know that because uh, this metaphor of putting on the armor of God is not something that Paul made up, but it's something that he's lifted from the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament. Uh, And in Isaiah, these metaphorical pieces of armor, do you know that they're used to describe how God's Messiah would be equipped to fight? Isaiah talks about this great king who wears a belt of faithfulness, a, a breastplate of righteousness, who wears salvation as a helmet. He's, he's described as having beautiful feet that proclaim a good news of peace. And his mouth is likened to a sharpened sword. So you see, the armor of God is not the virtues we are to be armed with, but the virtues that Jesus was armed with to face the devil. This is what Jesus wore. The second thing to notice is that these words, truth, righteousness, peace, faith, salvation, if you read through Ephesians, all these words are used to describe one thing, the gospel. This is the effects of the gospel. They describe what Jesus achieved for us. And our translation here is quite unhelpful in the NIV. It says, put on the armor of God. It's not a helpful translation of the Greek. Actually, a more helpful translation is having put on. It's a aorist tense, a past tense, having something that you have done when you became a Christian. So to put on the armor of God then is to put on the achievements of Christ. Paul frequently describes Christians in this letter as those who are in Christ. We're so inextricably linked to Jesus that his victory is our victory. And so we we go forward, uh, not in a a new battle against Satan, but standing firm in, in Christ's battle against Satan. This is Jesus and his gospel. This is what Jesus has achieved for us. And that is what we need to be aware of. And to understand if we are to stand strong against the attacks of the devil. Let me just give you some examples of how this works. We need to understand Jesus' achievements. We need to understand his gospel. Firstly, let's think about when the devil causes us to doubt our salvation or the truth that God really has forgiven all our sin. You know, the devil's chief tactic is to lie. I heard one minister this week say that the devil will not leave fan marks on your skin but lies in your heart. And our faith in the gospel is is the shield, as Paul says here. It's the shield that protects us from the fiery darts of, of those lies. What do we do when we're doubting And when we're starting to believe those lies. Verse 17 talks about the sword of the spirit. 
It's the word of God. The best offensive weapon against the devil's lies is the word of God. Read the word. Read what the Bible says about your salvation. What the Bible says about your righteousness. What the Bible says about your peace with God. And know that what is said here is true, not what we may feel. Uh, The great reformer, Martin Luther, used to say this, that when the devil throws your sins in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell, tell him this, I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And where he is, there I shall be also. That's putting on the armor of God right there. The belt of truth that I wear is it's not what my feelings tell me, but what Jesus tells me. The, the righteousness that is my breastplate is not my righteousness, but the righteousness that Jesus gives me. The salvation I wear as a helmet is not from my own efforts, but the salvation that Jesus purchased for me. And therefore, we can confidently declare what Luther says. I know I deserve death and hell. I do deserve that. But what of it? Because that's not what I've got. What about if you're feeling feelings of bitterness and, and anger? Or you're seeing disunity in the church? Remember, that's his foothold. How do we stand up against the satanic desire for disunity so that we don't give them a hoisty into this church? Wear the armor of the gospel. It's the gospel. Wield the truths of of Ephesians 2, the the word of God in Ephesians 2 against the, the lies of the devil, which whisper to you about how you are a better person than than any other person in this church. Remember the grace that Jesus has showed you. Remember your salvation. Remember your righteousness. Remember the truth. Remember the readiness to share the gospel of peace that our feet are clothed with. That's what we saw in Ephesians 2, that gospel of peace of how Jesus died to bring us peace with God and peace with one another. You see, that gospel, when you get the gospel, it dispels any notions of selfishness. And it breeds kindness. The gospel is the solution. Gospel should create a loving society of unity that displays God's wisdom to the spiritual powers. Or think about the the temptations that we have to sin. When we are tempted to sin, and and there's many ways that the devil will do that, through, through gossip or through sexual immorality, which is a big temptation that he talks about in this letter. Put the armor on. When the temptation comes, put the armor on. Remember the gospel. Remember the ugliness of the sin that you're about to commit. What it did to the Son of God. And remember the truth of who you are in his eyes. Of the righteousness that he clothes you in. Of the salvation that he purchased for you. Pray these great gospel truths when those moments of temptation come because having people to speak to having accountability software are good things but they are not going to change your heart you need the gospel it's the only thing and don't listen to the lie 
that there's not a way out. There's always a way out. There is. And the gospel needs to be beaten down into your heart so you can stand firm against these temptations. If the devil's attacking your marriages or your relationships, sit down with one another. Take the sword of the Spirit together. Read Ephesians 5 and 6 and and talk about how can we let the gospel shape our relationships. Struggling with assurance, if we're seeing the fractures of disunity, if we're feeling the enticement of sin, our first port of call is the gospel. It's the only thing that can help us. So how do we get that to bear upon our hearts? How do we get it from our head to our hearts? Third point, I think this is probably one of the most important points. Um, We need to be alert to continual prayer. You notice that Paul gives more airtime to to praying here than than any other piece of armor because prayer is the key to getting these great gospel truths to bear upon our heart. Prayer is what reinforces the shield of faith. Prayer is what sharpens the sword of the Spirit. Without prayer, you you won't know the, the armor that you're equipped with. Verse 18, pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. What does that mean, praying in the Spirit? Does that mean some kind of euphoric expression of prayer? No. What have we just learned about the Spirit? The sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. To pray in the Spirit is to pray in line with the Word of God. Using the the sword of the Spirit to shape your prayer life. We read what God says, we pray it back to him. That's praying in the spirit. When? All the time. Every occasion. Whether we're in green pastures or in death's dark valley. If there's danger of disunity, that's again one of the devil's chief tactics is disunity. If there's danger of disunity in the church, pray. Pray for each other. Pray for your own heart. Pray for wisdom and discernment with how to deal with complex situations. If you're doubting the truths of the gospel or if you're facing temptation, let prayer be your, your, your first port of call. Get on your knees and pray. Pray back the gospel. Pray the truths of God's word. Pray as a husband and wife. Pray as as children and parents stand firm in in his strength it's a a good way to gauge whether or not we're standing in the Lord whether or not we are standing strong if we're not praying it's like it's like living as if we're a functional atheist we're standing in our own strength not the Lord's strength We're to bring all our requests to God. But there's two key things that I think Paul is majoring on here that we must be praying for if we really are to understand the armor that we've been equipped with and if we're to stand up to the assault of the devil. Firstly, we've got to be praying for the church. Be alert, says Paul. So don't be lazy. You know, be attentive and alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people, for all the saints. And see, the more the gospel of Jesus takes root in your life, the more that you're drawn to, to pray for other people in the church. And there's no better way to love one another and to completely eradicate the devil's foothold when you pray for each other. 
Do you know, if anything the letter of Ephesians has taught us, it's that Christianity is not just about the individual. We make it all about us so often. And that is important. There's a personal element to it. But it's about the glory of Jesus reflected in the relationships that we have with one another. Expressed through his church. This is his temple. This is his bride. This is the expression of his wisdom that puts to shame the devil. Ephesians 3. We need each other and so we must pray for each other. So do you? Why not start this week? (laughs) Why not ask people? Pray for the people in your group, for the people you meet on Sunday. Sign up to the prayer email if you haven't already. And secondly, as well as praying for the church, Paul wants us to pray for the advance of the gospel. Pray also for me, says Paul, that whenever I speak, words may be given to me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. You know, this is so fascinating. Paul's in prison, right? If I was in prison, I was writing to you guys and and I wanted some prayer points. Quite high up on the agenda would be pray that I would get out of here. Um, Pray that I'd be able to endure. You know, pray that I'd get a good night's sleep. Uh, Those things are good. All requests we bring to God. But the priority for the Apostle Paul is that he would have an opportunity to speak the gospel. The mystery of the gospel that he spoke of in Ephesians 3. Pray that he will declare that mystery, that mystery that Jew and Gentile can be brought together as one under Christ. Pray that the gospel will go out to all nations. Think of of all that he has prayed for this church in this letter. And all he wants in return is just prayer for an opportunity to share the gospel. I find it encouraging that the Apostle Paul was worried that he would bottle it. He's worried, he needs boldness, he needs fearlessness to proclaim this message because the opposition is real. And you see, the more we start to pray for for both these things and just taking what what Hugh was praying for before the service and praying for the work that Mission International is doing and other um, mission organizations and praying for our own evangelism, the more we start to pray for the church and for the advance of the gospel, the more we will start to see how precious the church is and how the priority of the gospel And it's Christ's victory in the gospel and Christ's purchase of the church. That puts the devil to shame. We're out of time. Let me draw your attention to the final two verses. Poor Tychicus in verse 21. I'm not really talking about him. I feel that he's probably been sidelined quite a few times in sermons on Ephesians 6. Um, But um, we'll come back to him some other time maybe. Um, I just want to just draw your attention to the final two verses because we're pressed for time. Just look at these verses. This is the hallmarks of a church that is standing strong in the Lord. Peace, love, grace. A peaceful community filled with loving commitment centered upon the grace of God. And just look at the last verse, isn't that amazing? Of the whole letter. Grace to all who love the Lord Jesus with an undying love. That is 
the ultimate nail in the devil's coffin. His attacks are are temporary, but the love that we have for Christ is incorruptible and eternal. So when we love like that, we, we show to all that Jesus has won. Satan has no hold over us. That's what the gospel gives us. A love that is undying and incorruptible. Let me pray. And I'm going to use the prayer that Paul prayed for the Ephesian Christians in Ephesians 3. And then we'll finish up. Paul writes this. For this reason, I kneel before the Father from whom his whole family in heaven and earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Well, let's finish by singing a great hymn. Uh, based upon this passage, O Church Arise. Let's stand and sing uh, as the band begins to play. Yeah.